Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Cedar and Cypress Podcast. I'm Liv. And I'm Allison. And this is a very and... special episode. Yeah, I was like... And I'm Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Someone here else outgoing. here. Yeah. We have our very first guest on our podcast yeah. today. How do you feel, like, Charlie? You're so special. Yeah, how do you feel? Are you honored? I am, I am very, very nervous. Why? <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm okay. Oh. <laughs> I'm doing all right. No, I'm good. I'm really excited. I was like, you to speak to people for a living. <laughs> I, I guess you could call it that. Yeah, but once being recorded, yeah. there's some pressure. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. <laughs> there is. You only get one take here. There's definitely no editing that goes into this podcast. No, no, no. It's none perfect whatsoever. Time. We say right. everything that we want to say just how we want to say it. I probably could have the like, first time. Probably could have gotten a pipe out or a cigar or something. Just a. You can. Can I could. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I still do. You still can. Yeah. We uh-huh. could. Yeah. Well, yeah. anyway, for anyone who doesn't know, this is my husband, Charlie. We're having him on the podcast <laughs> um, because of our topic today, because we're going to be talking about toxic masculinity. So Charlie is very toxic. No, I'm just kidding. You've got a perfect example of toxicity. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just, we have the expert here. Just kidding. Good. No, that's like you. literally no. Um, yeah, but anyway, so Charlie does work in ministry, and this is a topic that he and I discuss pretty pretty frequently. Yeah, pretty yeah. much on a regular basis. So, um, do you want to kind of introduce yourself and yeah, explain my what you do and stuff? Is Charles Sanford, uh, husband to Liv Sanford, friend to many. <laughs> Just always feels le- like weird leading with your like achievements and accolades, like. I'll go for I'm, it. I'm a husband and a friend. Like that's, that's the important part, right? No. So I, um, I have worked in ministry for probably about five years in different capacities, whether that be worship or youth ministry, young adult ministry. Um, and am finishing up now my second biblical and theological studies degree um, from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So I am a uh, pretty, Pretty pumped, man, to to be here talking about. Can I introduce it? Yeah, oh, we already go, introduced go it. it. B- biblical masculinity, mm-hmm. and um, this is yeah, this is such a controversial topic, and yet such a, in my opinion, a, a pretty easily navigated topic biblically. There certainly are some some difficult topics in the Bible to navigate, but. I think with when it comes to masculinity, there are definitely some some very very clear multitudes of passages that that give us a good picture of it. So, mm-hmm. of course, nowadays if you claim that any passage is clear about anything, you're a fundamentalist. So, I guess that's what I am. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I do think the Bible is pretty 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 clear, pretty clear. on it. And um, yeah, we've definitely said that sentence before about other things too. So yeah, well, I mean, out. the you know. Again, I think you can chalk up the nuances to the Bible as, you know, however you want to read them, whether it's you want to, you know, create a theology for yourself or um, claiming an uncertainty about the scriptures when they're clear about a topic is mm-hmm. is a way to denounce their authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in the same way, that's that's kind of what this particular topic gets gets kind of thrown into. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is near and dear to live and I's life because we've we've had to live out really actually wrestling with these questions in a, in a real, not just theological way, but practical to our own church context and work context. 
mm-hmm. of what this actually means for us and our convictions to to the authority of the scriptures. So yeah. yeah. You said you said that you've been working in ministry for a few years now. Do you feel like this particular topic is something you stumble upon a lot in ministry, or where did you kind of start becoming more interested in this particular topic? Um, well, I, th- I think there's um there's a theological drift even happening amongst conservative evangelicals right now mm. to kind of minimize some of the um the I guess permissive or or, or texts of scripture that that talk about who can teach and who can't teach in the context of the New Testament church gathering. Um and and many of those texts get thrown the wayside because they're you know, it's a text here and there. So we should, we should synthesize, you know, a theology based off of women in the old Testament. Plus maybe, you know, the, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the arguments, you know, there's a, a name in the end of Romans that could potentially be a, a woman who is a, you know, a leader or an elder, or some, some form of, of higher, higher church authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's disputed even amongst Greek scholars, uh, let alone lay people who don't know Greek. <laughs> and, people and like me. Not, lay people. <laughs> no, no. And let alone the peasants. I am, who I, not, to, not to say, not to say that like <laughs> the point, point being that people who are study Greek for a living disagree on it. Yeah. And so therefore when people who don't know Greek, uh, passionately declare that this is permissive because of this this particular reading of this name. Uh, and we're kind of getting into the weeds, but all that being said, yeah. I, I, we haven't even asked a question I, I yet. Think, <laughs> I, yeah, I think the question at hand being, I, I've seen so-called conservative groups of evangelicals begin to create a hermeneutic that would ignore or, or give less weight to some of the passages that might argue for a traditional view of, mm-hmm. of yeah. biblical masculinity or, or biblical femininity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that happens with other things too. I think, you know, like it happens yeah. with a lot of things that people don't like. In the Bible. Yeah. It really comes down to uh, the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility, mm-hmm. but, but certainly have seen that on the, on the leadership level and just as a cultural trend yeah. within uh, evangelicals that are, are trying to be sensitive to some of the tendencies of progressivism while not going wholesale to the left theologically mm-hmm. or politically. Um, I think practically though, like with people in general, I, I've certainly talked to enough people who have struggled with their both man and female struggle with their role in the church and their home mm-hmm. because there's so many different cultural forces and currents pulling um, every which way when it comes to this particular topic. And we're actually about to do for our young adults ministry, we're about to do a, a series on anthropology, uh, biblical anthropology. What's a human mm-hmm. where we'll cover some of this because we think it's important enough yeah, to, talk to, about. Uh, to talk about. Yeah. Clarity. Uh, I think a lot of times what you'll see is language that is um, obscure language that is intentionally vague to avoid having to really finally define what we believe about this topic. Um, and I think that becomes incredibly unhelpful because it, what, where you essentially do that to protect yourself from having to take a side and thus get hit from one side or the other, you end up people leaving with less clarity than the Bible means to provide to them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, 
yeah, we shouldn't underestimate the power of definitions. I think the I live and I love definitions on this podcast. Like any topic that we start, we start with a definition yeah, because I, it. I we have to start on the same page. And I think that is one of the most powerful tools that you can have in your toolkit when you're having discussions about gender or about sex or about marriage. It's one of the most important aspects. So with yeah. that said, we had some definitions that we kind of wanted to start with. And one of them is what is complementarianism? Because we're familiar with that, but I think it's a really important thing to break down for this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. The, the word or the phrase complementarianism really is a, a product of some of these theological conversations dating back to the late 80s, 90s. Uh, particularly with guys I, I can think of off the top of my head, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, um, were, were the main figures in developing some of these thoughts in, in conserving uh, a, a theology, a biblical theology of, of manhood and womanhood. Um, and the counterpart then of, of, of complementarianism that arises around the same time is egalitarianism. And we'll define that as well, but complementarianism essentially uh, teaches that, that men and women are equal in respect to dignity, in respect to their image bearing, in respect to their worth, um, but are different um, or differ in their roles in, in both the house and in the church particularly. Um, and so I, I think complementarianism states what is queer by nature, that men and women are different. Um, and so egalitarianism is the belief that uh, men and women are equal in value and image bearing and worth. And we obviously agree with them on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, where they disagree w- with complementarians is that there is no distinction uh, of role or of headship at all in, in marriage or in the church. So men and women uh, have equal roles and can play, play the same roles interchangeably in the church and in the home. Um, and so obviously there's some nuanced topics about home life. I think for the, the, the purpose of this, we're going to talk mostly about for the church life um, yeah. because I think unhealthy complementarianism tries to get into the weeds of people's individual houses and, and begins to set unnecessary regulations on how they run their house. Obviously what this implies is that the man is the head of the home and the woman obviously is under the authority of the man in, in the home, which, which doesn't denote anything about equality or worth or value, like we said, but has to do with their function. And so we're going to probably spend most of our time, I think, today talking about roles in the church, particularly, because that can play out in so many different ways in people's individual homes yeah. um, mm-hmm. and in the weeds of their lives. So um, generally, I think we should we leave it less nuanced when it comes to the home and and leave that for people to to be counseled through with, with their pastors and um, to, to walk in, in the spirit of the Lord and in wisdom. Um, for example, like working, you know, like m- both me and live work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because gas costs $5 a gallon. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Right so, now it does. <laughs> uh, you can't really afford to, to be a one income house in your, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. mid 20s, uh, at least. And so what does that say about headship? Uh, nothing that's functional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those kind of details, um, we should leave to people to sort out in wisdom with the Lord and with each other. Yeah. yeah I'll get for their own discretion. Well, I also think like too, if you teach someone the foundational basis of Christian belief in the church, then like they should be able to take that and apply it themselves. Right. Like you don't have to tell them like, okay, yeah. So while you're here, you know, this is what we think, but also we're going to tell you how to live your life in your home. Right. As soon as you leave this place, like, you know, you just kind of direct them to the right thing, the right foundation. They can kind of build off of that themselves. Right. Yeah. I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty common thing. I feel like when you, when you, you think about the Bible being taught as a rule book or considered to be a rule book, instead of a guidebook, like a map for the whole rest of your life, instead of being do this, do that, don't do this, do that, kind of like a line by line item, play by play. That's where legalism kind of comes into contact with the actual way we're supposed to live our life under Christian principles. And I feel like we see that a lot, especially with the issue of masculinity, because it turns from a conversation about our actual roles, our functions in the way that our gender reflects the gospel. And then it switches it on its head to being kind of like a list of rules or a certain characteristics you have to prescribe to or ways you should appear even physically all these different things that don't really have anything to do with really who you are and who God made you to be right and I think oftentimes people there there's there is a clear interpretation of the text but there are many applications of the text and so people often apply the text which you know might be an application that they are currently you know putting into their lives and mm-hmm. will bind other people to that application um, when, when we, we ought not bind, uh, other people to our particular, particular conviction when it comes to things like, uh, well, I, you know, me and my wife have come to the conclusion that she's not going to work because we think that best models headship, like that kind of conviction would be inappropriate within, within even the, the bounds of healthy complementarianism mm. to project onto somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We don't have have the the right to bind our brothers and sisters' conscience like that mm-hmm. to a to a personal conviction that's been arrived to from the scripture that has a clear meaning. Yeah, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, with that, I think that's that's kind of a starting starting point to kind of talk about these issues, understanding that um, again, primarily talking about complementarianism in the in the context of the church. Yeah. Agreed. But yeah, with that said, I think like moving on to other definitions, we kind of just want to specify what we're talking about when we say both biblical masculinity and toxic masculinity. So we can kind of go off from those things. Um, Because I think just like some of the other topics that we've discussed, toxic masculinity specifically is like a phrase that people could like take and run with it if they don't really know. like And already have. Yeah, they kind of give their own, like, interpretation of it. So we want to make sure we're defining, like, what we mean when we say that. Yeah. I'll take toxic masculinity because I think we're going to want to spend more time unpacking what biblical masculinity is. But with toxic masculinity, it's one of those things that I do think culture has somewhat hijacked the the phrase. Um, Because what I'm referring to when I talk about toxic masculinity are those 
are those things we're trying to bind other people to our conscience in the way that we think that certain characteristics should play out, such as masculinity. And I think one of those things can be as simple as your appearance, like that you should look a certain way. You should be super buff and tall that you're, you're not a real man if you're not. And that sounds silly, but that's a genuine message that like I grew up seeing all around my life. And I mean, mm-hmm. someone I knew as well, he, um, he was a guy and he was pretty short and like pretty skinny almost his whole life and being bullied for that and kind of being treated as less of a man, that's going to have an impact on you later on. Yeah. You were a kid, but that's going to stick with you for a while. So toxic masculinity is that, is that idea of projecting the way that you think manhood should be lived out onto other people with a complete absence of the biblical principle behind what what God made them to be. So that's an example. But on the flip side, I think that society has somewhat hijacked that term and used it to, as a way to kind of subvert biblical principles, as a way to say that if you think that men should be protective and should be caring and should be leading the home, then that's toxic masculinity. So Mm -hmm. that's a really, really important distinction for us to make on this podcast, because we're not talking about we're not talking about that per se. I feel like I see the the phrase toxic masculinity applied in a lot of times when conservative evangelicals will be trying to talk about biblical masculinity. And then that's not really something that's popular. So we're just going to look at toxic masculinity. I think also a distinction that gets lost is that there is something good and right about traditional masculinity. Mm-hmm. Like that, that men act like men according to the culture that they're in. Right. Because we, we, we talk so much about gender today and, and gender in, in many ways, like there, there are cultural identities that come along with, with being in a, in a particular gender, being a male or a female. But according to I'm just even thinking of, like, for example, First Corinthians 6, 9, where, where Paul lists off a couple of, of kinds of sins that will will merit in not inheriting the kingdom of God. And one of those sins translates to soft and it gets translated to effeminate and it kind of confuses people. What do you mean? Uh, well, the word used there is, is malakoi, which is literally a word that means soft. It's used in the context of clothing in, in the Greek language. I'll read it for you. Um, the unrighteous uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, so don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, uh, again, the literal translation being Malakoi, uh, effeminate, nor homosexuals, those who practice homosexuality. And so those two are kind of linked together, uh, Malakoi and arsenokoitai, which is the Greek word for homosexuality, or even uh, a composite word. Uh, arsen to bed with, to lie with, to sleep with. And I'm sorry, arsen being man and, and koitai obviously being the the sexual. And so with that, uh, what what we see is, are, are we seeing Paul condemning any men who aren't, you know, aren't the brawny paper towel man to hell? <laughs> right. No, we're not I'm seeing that. He's, <laughs> what, what Paul is, is referring to it is the ancient practice of making oneself feminine in order to attract men. And that's the context of it being uh, grouped together with homosexuality in that passage is that when a man is uh, intentionally making himself feminine, softer, 
um, in order to to either lure other men or just to appear feminine. This is something very similar to what we would see in our culture as transgenderism. Mm-hmm. That is what what is actually being condemned there. He's not condemning a uh, a sort of uh, beta male kind of situation. <laughs> That's not what's happening. Um, I think we need to make that distinction because I think oh, yeah. what gets lost is that when I say traditional masculinity, I don't mean having a beard and being six feet five or whatever. Um, I mean, men who traditionally identify with the classical characteristics of what a man is mm-hmm. um, according to their culture. Um, and the same thing applies, for example, with the conversation on head coverings in First Corinthians 11 where Paul encourages women to have long hair and men to have short hair. Um, this is a sign of gender distinction and, and therefore a sign of authority, which is the context of, of the passage. Um, so what's happening there is he's saying, men, you should look and act and dress like men. So whatever it is in your culture, like, for example, I've, I've heard it said, well, like, well, well, men can wear dresses because men in Scotland wear kilts and say, well, right. in our culture, men don't wear dresses because right. those are reserved for, for women. <laughs> <I don't care. laughs> so, uh, in their culture, men wear mm-hmm. kilts and traditional garb. Right. And that's a completely different context because that's appropriate for manhood in their culture. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point. Cause I think like, and it's interesting too, because I think as culture becomes more and more progressive, and we see people like begin to try to make gender ambiguous, like more and more and more. It's kind of like there are certain distinctions that I almost feel like you have to make um, that you maybe wouldn't have had to make before because people would just assume. Um, mm-hmm. Like, for example, I'll give an example. Um, like Charlie and I have talked all the time about like, you know, when we have kids someday, like, would we do this? Would we do that? Yeah. And like, one of the things that like I used to, I probably like 10 years ago would have been like, oh yeah, I I wouldn't really care about that. Like if my son wanted like a Barbie doll or something, instead of like one of the guy's toys or something like 10 years ago, I probably would have been like, I don't really care. Like if he's, you know, entertained by that, like, that's totally fine. Like whatever, you know, whatever entertains him, whatever he finds, like, you know, fun doing or whatever when he's a kid. But nowadays, to be totally honest, I think I would say like, no, like you're going to play with this kind of thing. And some people might think that that's like really terrible, really controversial or whatever. But I think because of the way culture is going, you almost have to like start setting those boundaries of like, this is what a man is. And this is what a woman is like, just based on culture and things like that. Because if you don't, it just becomes like, fluid and I think an important point with that there was a guy named uh, Cornelius Van Til who pioneered a a kind of thinking at least in modernity in in our contemporary time uh, called presuppositional apologetics and I I think one of the the benefits of of a this is gonna be a long long phrase here an anthropological presuppositional apologetic for gender and sexuality Oh my. Uh, meaning an, an apologetic for what is a human. Yeah. Um, society doesn't have the moral high ground 
on on what is human. In fact, according to secularism, a human is just another random formation of particles and molecules that that have happened by chance. And we assign value to them based off of an arbitrary and somewhat cultural sense. And so, for example, if someone were to say, well, it's unfair that you would you not let your child play with girls toys or or your your young man play with you know girls toys or, or, or dress in a dress i'd say well okay but i i am working from a different functional definition of what a human is that assumes that a human has an intentional design that plays directly into their their sex which is their physical right and also their gender Mm-hmm. Um, which by the way, biblically, there isn't a whole lot of distinction. That's also part of secular, um, gender theory that is, um, at, at odds to some degree with the Bible in the sense that gender, yes, has cultural implications, right? Men mm-hmm. like football. I mean, that's what we're talking about with dresses. Why, why don't men wear dresses? Because it's a, a cultural distinction for women. But at its core, a man is a man because he's a man, mm-hmm. because we can define what a man is because he has male genitalia. And so mm-hmm. my whole point being, um, when we're, we're kind of feel like we're, we have the, the moral low ground, uh, because society will box Christians into that, um, I think a defense that we, we can give is to say, well, I, I have a working and functional definition of what a human is um, as defined by the scriptures. And uh, we can say to the world or say to the non-Christian, you really don't have uh, a a functional definition of what a human is. And and my case in point in the last month, you know, we've had a Supreme court justice say, I can't tell you what a woman is because I'm not a biologist. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you can't define by an objective sense of reality, what a human is or why it has dignity or value or worth, um, then you can't begin to tell me with any kind of moral certainty that I don't have the right to understand what a human is biblically, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm coming from a different working understanding of what a human is. And I'd say that your definition of a human is faulty. It holds no real meaning or value. Um, and so uh, we're working from completely different definitions as well. Yeah. And so I think the the moral low ground that Christians feel and the moral high ground that the world often feels by boxing Christians into this box of intolerance can really be solved by saying, well, no, I'm actually working from a functional and a valuable definition of what a human is. And therefore we're coming to different conclusions because I don't think humans are amorphous blobs of matter (laughs) that can be defined however we feel like day to day. Like Mm -hmm. God has given us distinct and true and good ways that we image us himself in, Mm -hmm. in both our, our gender, our sexuality and in our differences as male and and females. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to add something to what you just said when you talked about God assigning that, because I think you make a really, really important point that it comes from a different understanding of, of humans and definition of who we are and why we're here, but that's undergirded by our understanding of God. I think that 
we can't understand our, we can't understand ourselves as humans and our relationship to the world, unless we understand God first, because otherwise right. it's just devoid of meaning. That's exactly what postmodernism is. That's exactly what we're seeing. We've talked about this on a podcast so many times that we're just living in different realities at that point. If, if we are rejecting God and his presence, his design, we're not going to understand ourselves. And this is, this is the natural result of that, of what we're seeing right now in our culture, the degeneracy and the preying upon children and the confusion. That's just the natural result of when we decide to define ourselves. Well, what is, it's comical to me to speak of anything regarding toxic masculinity when we don't have as a culture, a functional definition of what a man is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. Yeah. Cause it's like, I mean, if you ask different people, then they're like, oh, well, if it's just a biological thing, like what about surgeries that change that then aren't they this person? But it's like, it's just, it's so much more than that. When you look at it biblically and you look at, you know, who God is and who God created humans mm-hmm. to be and man and women to be in general, but. Right. Because, because cosmetic changes are not going to change your metaphysical and spiritual reality. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's again, the part that is completely devoid from, from this way of thinking, because in that way of thinking, like Charlie just said, that doesn't really exist. Your spiritual reality and value, your image bearing identity aren't even present. So if it's really all mm-hmm. just about our physical, what we can touch and see and smell taste like, okay, then sure. You can become a man if you change your body surgically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in some ways it's a, it's almost a secular scheme of salvation similar to, to Gnosticism in yeah, the sense that I agree. if you, if I feel like I am not what I am in my body, like I am a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body, mm-hmm. or I am a man trapped in whatever body you think in between, whatever. I mean, how many genders are there? I don't know. <laughs> um, At this point, who knows? <laughs> the, sec- the secular scheme of salvation as presented by brilliant thinkers, such as those at Disney plus and Netflix um, <laughs> would say that the end goal of human existential reality is to discover your true self. This is the language of salvation. Um, and it's very clever because it, it, it actually presents itself as a plan of salvation to look inward, to discover your inner self, who you really are. Well, actually inwardly I'm Nancy. Okay. Well now we've, we've identified who I am inwardly. And so now I, I am to manipulate myself externally to fit my inward reality. And therefore I'm actualizing my true self, quote unquote. And this Mm -hmm. is how I experience uh, this, this fullness of life is by expressing myself as I truly am. Right. And the problem that this poses, of course, is that this is communicated to lost, broken, rebellious, sin riddled people saying, maybe if I just look within me, I can somehow fix myself and and bring about this eternal life here, right? And I'm using Christian language to make a point. I I understand that's not what people are saying. Um, But really, it it is a form of of salvation. It's a secular form of salvation um, that says, if I can can identify in myself my, my true self, and bring it to the front. And so that's the problem. It's like, well, I don't fit into masculinity. Well, it's Mm -hmm. like, well, um, if it's been defined by God, right. And plays out, um, 
pretty consistently throughout all cultures and times and periods. I mean, men have traditionally always been about the same thing. <laughs> um, you know, providers, protectors, the warriors, the uh, the leaders. The I mean, that's kind of always been the case. And we'll mm-hmm. talk more about like what that looks like post fall and how it's distorted. Mm-hmm. But again, it's saying, well, maybe if I, it's the same as did God really say in many ways um, that I I am a man, but what if I become this, then I'll have satisfaction and be my, my true most expressive yeah. self. Mm-hmm. And that's really, it really is the, the model of, salvation and gender theory and in all kinds of kind of secular thought Mm -hmm. is the, the liberation of the true self into the freedom of unhindered expression of identity. And that's kind of what we're seeing when we're talking about secular gender theory. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same old lie. It's the same old lie. Like you said, did God really say Mm -hmm. like, are you really a man? Mm -hmm. I do want to ask though, like, what would you say to men who don't necessarily fit like the stereotype or even like the biblical like definition of masculinity, just like personality wise, if they're, they kind of tend more towards like feminine things or like their natural desire is more mm-hmm. to like nurture. Well, you're, or you know, like you got your degree in psychology. So <laughs> talk about personality theory. Uh-huh. Um, personality is such an interesting thing, especially in the individualized West to where we we speak of personality as though to, that if it is altered by the the community that it's somehow tainted mm-hmm. that it's somehow wrong for external influences again this comes back to the secular scheme of of salvation through gender theory that if it somehow is molded by external forces other than our true expression then then somehow there's something wrong with that mm-hmm. that any cultural a standard of what masculinity or femininity is that's that is impressed onto somebody is inherently wrong. And so I'd say to, to like, for example, for, for the effeminate man, um, like there is, there's nothing wrong with being the guy who's like, you know what? I just don't really get fishing or I don't really, yeah, you know, the traditional, the traditional mask, whatever, fill in the blank, right? Yeah. Like, I don't really get it. Like I'm more into fill in the blank, you know, like mm-hmm. scrapbooking or like whatever. And, and we like to identify masculinity with those things. And I think it goes deeper than that. Um, <laughs> there's something underneath those cultural markers that points to a deeper reality of what appeals to men and what appeals to women and what defines men and what defines women? Mm-hmm. What is it about uh, the the provider, protector, leader DNA that's been ingrained into men through centuries by the image of God and enforced by the common grace through society? What is it about that that's so terribly wrong? Mm-hmm. Well, nothing. Of course, nothing. It's a good thing. Um, but the, the issue isn't, you know, a man who doesn't particularly uh, embody those cultural markers. It, it, I think it's at some point becomes a potentially, not always, but, but can be a um, potentially a, a pointer to a deeper 
deeper issue when it comes to embracing masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, I'm, I'm speaking on a very general level because it, it, it right. really is a case by case thing. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I wanted to add something to that too. The vice versa side is if there's a woman that's interested in things that are traditionally masculine activities like right. sports, like fishing, maybe you like to drive trucks. Like, I don't, I don't know, whatever example you want to use there is that that doesn't change again it doesn't change your our metaphysical and our spiritual reality and the Mm -hmm. one other thing I wanted to add on to the note about personality too is that there are there are definitely some things about a personality that just don't change throughout our lives there's that but I think we underestimate how much we change as people over the course of time and how much our personality changes as well and that if you are trying to justify irreversible change to your body on that basis, it's a really, it's a really slippery slope to try to stand on. It doesn't stand for very long. And I think we'll, we see that with a lot, a lot of different things. Um, so again, when we're taking the exceptions to the rule and then applying them like they're in the rule, that's where we, I think, get into a lot of trouble when we're saying like, no, no, women can't be into sports and women can't be into fishing and guys can't be into ballet and they can't look like scrapbooking, that kind of stuff. That's, that's the legalism. And that's where the toxicity comes in. Right. And right. that's where I think for me was one place where the Lord will continue to work in my heart as someone who, who I think embraces kind of more of a traditional masculinity when it comes to both appearance and interests and um, to, to delineate between the character of a biblical man, which by the way is the character of Christ. um, And we'll get to that more in a second. And the, uh, the social or, or cultural preferences that are true and good and revealing of, um, qualities of manhood um but are not hard fast rules for men to follow Mm -hmm. um so yeah i I think that that distinction is is helpful they point to a reality that's true about men Mm -hmm. why do do men love sports for football what 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 is it about competition that that appeals to men particularly not that doesn't appeal to women um, to the, uh, the physical dominance of sports, things like that. Well, that's pretty ingrained into human history and culture and society as a distinctly masculine, um, you know, way of, of protecting and providing and competing. And these are all good things that, that I think train men from an early age to, to provide and protect and to be strong. And those are all good things. What is wrong Mm -hmm. with that? Mm-hmm. Um, inherently nothing. And we'll get to it later yeah. that because of the fall, because of Genesis three, we see that both femininity and masculinity, um, even Romans one will teach us that, that uh, as a result of sin, uh, gender and sexuality take a huge hit. <laughs> I mean, the whole of, of the human is shattered mm-hmm. mind, will, and, and soul. Uh, and, and I don't mean to make a distinction between the mind and the soul. Biblical authors interchange words like psyche and, um, and, uh, pneumatos spirit, new, you know, uh, there's not a, a trichotomy. 
at least that I can see. Uh, I know it's like, why is that important? Well, <laughs> because when we're talking about the effects of the fall, it matters, right? We're talking about men's minds have been um, darkened, their hearts, their will has been twisted around itself. Their mm-hmm. physical bodies are now lusting after their minds are lusting after men, men lusting after men. This is Romans 120, somewhere in there. Um, as the, as a result of rejecting God as God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are like, right. Like gender, even in its healthiest expressions, traditional masculinity, traditional femininity, that's good and, and represents something true about, about manhood and womanhood. Mm-hmm. Um, like we're, we're living in a broken mirrored image of the, the design that God, God has in in Genesis one and two. Yeah. I think it's also important, like to emphasize the, the, I guess like vitality of the case by case basis part of it too, because as human beings, I think like we all share a lot of the same characteristics and things ingrained within us. Like if you're a man, that doesn't mean that you're not nurturing at all or like that you're not like compassionate at all. Or like, it's just that those, and like when you're dealing with people, it's going to be complex on a case by case basis where like some people will be more, um, you know, prone to leadership than other people. And like, you know, so it really is like a case by case basis, but I think it's just knowing like at the end of the day, like our core and who we were made to be, Mm -hmm. there are roles in that, you know, based on being a man or being a woman. Liv, what was that uh, word that you explained, like that phrase in our very first episode, you talked about God's characteristics and the ones that he has imparted to us. I can't remember what the phrase was. The communicable. Yeah. yeah communicable those. and un- incommunicable. Those yeah, things I like, think we can point back to. Absolutely. And and that's again, a, a way where men and women image God. Right. Um, is God nurturing? Yes. I mean, look at the, the language of, of Jesus approaching Jerusalem. I would have gathered you under my wings as a, as a hen gathers her young. Like that's it. That's the, the direct imagery he uses as a, as one, he uses motherly language and like, you know, that some people get freaked out by that. What do you mean he uses motherly language? You know, but, but that's true. I mean, there's, we're imaging God. If, if women are nurturing, right. If, if women are tender towards their young and, and are gentle Right. And not saying men aren't again, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, but if that's a way women seemingly distinctly as mothers uh, image God, then that's all true of God. And we see that obviously in the scriptures that Jesus is gentle and lowly and a friend to sinners. And mm-hmm. um, we also see the fatherly language used, right? Like that he's, he's a father, he's a protector and a defender of his own. Uh, he's a judge. He's the, warring king Mm -hmm. um so the issue becomes um where we we emphasize one over the other Mm -hmm. we we will then have an incomplete picture of god and i would argue that we feminized jesus a lot Mm -hmm. Um, there's a great book called gentle and lowly um by by dane ortland that i think is a phenomenal book Mm -hmm. But I think there's a chance. So it really speaks to the gentle, tender, kind heart of Jesus towards sinners and towards those struggling. And 
And that's true. And the issue is, though, that I think that Jesus is particularly emphasized and that the Jesus who comes to tread out the fury of the wrath of God, um, who, who will execute justice, who will slay the enemies of God, who will do righteousness and will reign with a, a rod of iron, that Jesus is not a very tolerant Jesus. Uh, he's, he's not as, as welcomed in the modern evangelical pulpit as he should be. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Jesus who comes gentle and lowly it is a Jesus in many ways who, who is seemingly more tolerable or, or tolerant, excuse me, and also tolerable. But at the core, what we're seeing there is, is the feminization of, of, of God. <laughs> um, and people may disagree with that, and that's okay. But I think for the most part, when we see Jesus um, in our modern pulpit, we see dainty Jesus um, with the, the flowing blonde hair. And blonde. I don't, that's, I'm just, you know, I was like, I've Discovery never seen Channel. a picture of blonde <laughs> I, I always, I always, my grandma had a I've picture of Jesus hanging in her house. Have you? Yeah and, it, yeah. and I was asked her like, who's that, who's that blonde guy? Um, who's that blonde chick? And it's just right, like, yeah, like, seriously. <laughs> um, the beard. <laughs> and I think in many ways, um, yeah the again the the feminization of jesus when when jesus uh obviously is a is a gentle kind the kindest most gentle loving man who ever lived mm-hmm. but is also the most broad-chested teller of truth least cowardly of them all mm-hmm. strongest bravest man to ever live well i think that's why and we've talked about this multiple times like in various episodes on various topics, but just it's like another problem of leaving one part out. Yeah. You know, it's like all of those things are Jesus. All of those things are, you know, part of God's character. Like he's not like one or the other. He's not one sometimes and another. It's divine simplicity, right? Like he is both. I mean, this is what Paul talks about. Consider both the sternness. This is Romans 11. uh, Consider both the sternness and kindness of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say masculinity is necessarily stern because we see pictures of masculinity, for example, uh, in Luke 15, the father who jumps off the porch, you know, to go and to hug and kiss his son who's returned. He's, he embraces his son with warmth and affection. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is to say that that there are some some pictures of God. Um, that are that are telling us truth about God that are often rejected because I think our world prefers, uh, well, number one, a God with no wrath, uh, but also the the picture of of dainty Jesus who just taught everybody to love and never said anything about repent or perish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of those things, I mean, reflected culturally, you see people now calling God she. Mm. Um, I mean, this is this feminist rebellious thing against God. Um, and I think it's revealing to us a, a lot about our, our desire to make God in our own image, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which is why the temptation for, for, I think guys, especially in the reformed world where God is, you know, we, the emphasis on, on us being sinners and God being just and holy, uh, we often forget to, to emphasize and to preach hard 
the father who runs off the porch to greet his, his son who's wayward and come home. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a temptation to both sides to, to emphasize one, to or, emphasize the one or the other. Yeah. And I think at, at its worst, it's that, and no, I'm sorry, at its best, it's that at its worst, it's making God in our own image. Mm. Uh, I was just going to say kind of while we're on the topic of that example, I think it, what would be helpful too for listeners is to kind of have concrete examples because up until now we have a lot of it is kind of, it's theoretical somewhat. Yeah. I think it's hard sometimes to apply this to what we see in everyday life or even extract these ideas from what we read in the Bible. So I kind of wanted to to see if we had any kind of examples of good or bad masculinity in the Bible where it manifests and if there's kind of concrete places we can point people to that will really help you um, be able to synthesize what we're talking about and apply that and really see that and then see that transcribed in your life as well. Yeah. So are there any examples I guess you guys could think of? Um, I mean, I know for me personally, like, and this might seem like the Sunday school answer, just like Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> but just like, um, I mean, but it's true. But I mean, I think when we're talking about like the best example of, you know, what a man is supposed to look like a Christian man, you know, yeah. someone who is a believer, like a holy, godly man, um, is obviously going to be Jesus because he was fully God. He was fully man. So, you know, in that way, like he can't embody that as the perfect example, because anybody else is going to fall short at some point, you know, like any other man mentioned in scripture is still under, um, not like under the wrath of God, if they're a believer, but like, yeah, under Adam, basically. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, (laughs) so just like, you know, they're under Adam, meaning that they are fallen human beings. And so they're going to fall short at some point, they're going to sin, they're going to backslide, they're going to not always uphold that best example. So obviously like the best example that you can turn to is the one man who never fell short, who never Mm -hmm. sinned. Yeah. I I think a couple examples, I'll, I'll talk about the bad. So we have a contrast for the good and I'll Mm -hmm. sum up the good. I think at Abraham, yeah, it was just like who the, I was thinking he's of. He's like the man of faith, <laughs> but then he like, rather than like being like, no, this is my wife. He's like, nah, it's my sister. Like Protect himself. Pretty shady. Uh, he protect, protects himself. Um, if I was like ever out somewhere with you and you're just like, <laughs> this is yes, my sister. my sister live. I'd be like, I'm going to kill I'm, you. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh man, well, she probably felt that way. <laughs> so the, the two categories, the main categories I can think of or at least the two that are coming to my mind just on the spot are um, cowardly, which again is revelation 21, mm. you know, cowardly will face wrath. I mean, that's a crazy thought, but also uh, I, I think of men who abuse their power and their strength. Um, so I even think of like David, uh, David had immense power and influence and strength and the ability to, to do what he pleased. And we see that David is called, and and the interesting thing about both David and Abraham is they're called men who were after God's own heart. Mm -hmm. Um, That Abraham was a friend of God. David was a man who sought the face of the Lord. Um, And yet they have terrible blunders in their manhood Mm -hmm. where, where David abuses his power to, to have a man killed and, and then sleep with his wife yeah, well, least, I wanted to add that he had him killed after he had slept with Bathsheba. So it was right. to cover up, cover up the sin he had already committed. Right, exactly. And so the the idea being that men who use their 
their strength. And this is what Jesus says. Don't be like the, the Gentile Kings who lord over their subjects. Um, this is where it ties back into Jesus, where a man uses his strength not to lord over or to, to uh, selfish and fleshly ends. Um, he uses his authority to, to love and serve those whom God has entrusted him to. Mm-hmm. And so again, the cowardly, I think of like a Judas or even a Peter in mm. Galatians too. And Paul, you know, gives it to him. He even says he's denied the gospel because he, you know, he acts one way when the, the Jews aren't around. And when they come, he's a good Jewish boy again, keeping kosher. <laughs> he's saying your life is, is an abomination. It's mm-hmm. you're a coward. You're, you're demonstrating that you care more about the applause of man than the the praise of God, the faithfulness to God has has fallen off the list for the sake of pleasing men. And, and so I think the two classic biblical examples of uh, that I can think of off the top of my head are, are the, the the misuse of power uh, to abuse those um, who are weaker and the the cowardly, the, the kind of man who who takes the easy way out the kind of man who, who would compromise faithfulness to God um, for the sake of, of literally anything else, which is why the, the picture of biblical manhood that we see in, in the book of Daniel was uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego um, who say, no, we're not going to worship your, your image. You're just a silly little man and God can deliver us or he can not deliver us, but either way, we're not going to worship you. Mm. Uh, and ultimately that finds its fulfillment in Christ who was with them that day, uh, in the fire, um, who, who says, I'm going to be obedient to death and death on a cross to the glory of the name of my father. And so Jesus is the least cowardly man that's ever lived. And he is the most faithful man that's ever lived. And he is the, uh, the man who had the power to, to call down fire and, and to, to Lord over his apostles. And yet he's the one who yeah. washed their feet. Mm-hmm. And so the, the picture of masculinity that's painted in Jesus is one of limitless. I mean, speaking of Jesus, particularly limitless authority and power, and yet uses it to serve yeah. and does so without cowardice and, and to the obedience and to the glory of God. Yeah, I think power is a really important thing and it, or abuse of power is a really important thing when we talk about manhood, because just as you're talking, I was thinking of two examples of men who I think were are really great examples of masculinity in the Bible. And certainly they're not Jesus and they had their shortcomings, but two people that come to mind for me are Joseph and Jonathan. So Joseph in Genesis and then Jonathan being the king of Saul, friend mm-hmm. of David. And these were two people here who had a tremendous, tremendous title power. So Jonathan was a prince, and then Joseph was second in command in Egypt. Extremely powerful, had authority over so many people and and so many resources. Both of them took their power and they chose to provide and protect for others who weren't even their wife, by the way. I mean, Joseph helped essentially all of Egypt and, of course, his brothers and his father. And then Jonathan saved uh, David on many occasions from Saul's wrath and from murder attempts. So those are just an example of how it's not always in the context of the home 
or in relationship with the wife that we see good biblical manhood played out in examples. You know, God gives us examples. He shows us this is what it really looks like when men step up into their function and operate as I created them to, to protect others, to help others, to provide. That plays directly into the calling of men in the pastorate, right? As leaders, as shepherds, as protectors, right? Um, And so one of the ways practically how this plays out, you're asking, is I think men who are cowardly in the pulpit, uh, man, that is just the scariest place to be a coward. Mm, Um, That you hear a lot of men uh, pervert the truth to save their own tails, um, to water down God's word in order to be tolerable to others. And they've proven themselves to be cowards. So, I mean, I've talked to guys even recently about, man, our heart, our vision is to, to raise up pastors, to raise up men, to raise up preachers who, who preach a cross-centered, bloody, wrath-absorbing, God-exalting gospel um, that will be bound to offend carnal minds. And so I think for the pastor, those things come together where you, you see authority, um, but that authority is used to serve and love God's people. Mm-hmm. And you see every week in the pulpit opportunity to cower away from the charge of God, to be faithful, to divide the word of God rightly. Um, and oftentimes you're seeing today um, a failure to do that, a, a cowardliness, a cowardice. That's the word. That's the English word we're looking for mm-hmm. um, in the pulpit mm-hmm. that, that men aren't willing to call sin, sin, to preach the gospel, to, to preach the parts. Uh, and I don't want to say parts because we've talked about the divine simplicity, that God isn't parts, but he is the total of, of his attributes completely, mm-hmm. but, but fail to preach God in his fullness, God in his fullness um, for the sake of the praise of men. That to me, um, is a practical example of where biblical masculinity is needed in the church. Gentle, kind, lowly pastors who love their their people, love the church, but who will stand for the gospel. Do you feel like? Do you feel like the way that today's church is operating is it encouraging men to live into how the Bible calls them, or do you feel like? it's discouraging them from doing so. It depends on the church. Yeah. I mean, defining that's so interesting because, you know, today it's such a, the church is such a buzzy phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody uses the church and they all mean different things. The church right. is failing. The church isn't failing. The church needs to reach young people. The church is doing this wrong. And so it's like, okay, let's define that. Um, mm-hmm. Let me just say in seeker sensitive watered down pop culture evangelicalism let's get real specific (laughs) yeah um i think there's a functional egalitarianism that does not have a strong call to men to Mm -hmm. say you are to lead the church and your home you are to stand for christ you are to love him boldly and you are to serve those around you with sacrificial love um as a distinctly masculine call you don't hear a lot of that and in the same way, you don't hear a lot of a call to women. You are to love and support your husband and cherish your husband and respect him. Uh, and again, in the context of marriage, I'm talking here and, and to submit to the elders of the church. Um, and again, that's not blind submission. Uh, we can talk about church hurt 
and you know you should not submit to ungodly elders mm-hmm. right <laughs> but to to be a part of the local church to submit to the church to serve the church with fervence um, to love your family to nurture your kids to prioritize your family above your career these are the is the call that's the call to to biblical womanhood that i think is so powerful to say you've been charged by God with a sacred task of bringing life into the world. And once you have faithfully stewarded that life, as well as be the kind of example uh, of Jesus, who, though he was equal to God, right? The morphe, the form of God, did not consider equality something to be grasped, but humbled himself. Again, this is the picture we see where complementarianism actually models the Trinity, mm-hmm. where, where Christ humbles himself to God and the father who's uh, according to first uh, Corinthians 11, that the head of Christ, again, that has nothing to do with dignity, value or worth. Otherwise we don't have a fully divine Jesus. Um, it has nothing to do with his divinity, majesty, or, um, you know, co-rulership of the universe with the, the father and the spirit, but it has everything to do with their relational dynamic of how the father uh, lifts up the son as the son submits himself to the father. Um, And so this distinct call to image God through our distinction of masculinity and and femininity. uh, No, I I don't think that is primarily emphasized as a part of our imaging of God, of our glorifying God through embracing uh, these roles. I don't think that's a particularly strong call, even amongst uh, particularly conservative churches. Um, again, because it's, it feels culturally irrelevant right now, or maybe not even relevant. It, it seems to cause cultural friction. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it can be avoided. And um, man, I just think that's just the worst thing you could do. I think right now, clarity on the topic is the most important thing you could bring. Uh-huh. So I was just going to add a quick comment that I feel like pastors are somewhat torn between unity and clarity. Right. There's a much more conversation we can have on that, but I just kind of wanted to add that. Oh no, that's definitely true though, by the way. Just like, <laughs> yeah, like I see that all the time. In fact, I feel like when someone consistently stretch or stresses unity, like as their primary goal um, above other things that might be more important, it like you, you can see how things end up weirdly like falling apart. Like yeah. they end up not being unified exactly. because they're like trying to please everybody right. then so that they, for the sake of unity, they say, which is like not a bad thing. Obviously we want to be unified no, as the body yeah. of Christ, but it's just like when you put that above truth or above right. well, like that's what the thing is that God's word says that's a problem. We're unified. This is why I love confessions and creeds um, because it unifies us. Planting your flag on the ground on an issue uh, will divide, but it'll also unify. Mm-hmm. This is where we stand. And so I think it's helpful actually to, to be really clear on, on such topics because it actually allows, especially from like a pastoral perspective, like it actually allows your people to have clarity about where your church stands. Mm-hmm. They know how to communicate what they believe. Um, and if they disagree, they actually know what you believe. Um, and so unity in the church isn't just this kumbaya, sit around the fire, hold hands and sing. Like it's actually unity is in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, and is is the humble expectation that if you call yourself a Christian, 
uh, that you will be growing in your obedience and submission to God's word together. Mm-hmm. So that's, I feel like that's a working definition at least. Yeah. Comes yeah. back to the the purpose of unity. Is it, is it to please people or is it to glorify God and for Christ? That's really yeah. what it comes down to. So we didn't quite touch on Genesis three. I, I'd like to just briefly that how the curse of sin soils this relationship between men and women where now there's mm. toil for the man providing and childbirth is even in this you see role distinctions provision and childbirth as being the two main distinctions of the house um well and just like caring for others i think it's like right you know obviously there's even just results of the fall in that like someone when can't have children even right. if they want to and right things the, like the emphasis being on the reproductive process for females particularly being cursed right um being painful um and so what you see then is that you know your the exact wordings will be your the woman will desire to rule over the man but the man will rule over her essentially right yeah, and, literally says that. Yeah, and like, so <laughs> like what words. you're seeing, even in modern feminism, is just that playing out. You're seeing yeah, the curse play out. And the amazing thing about how the, the church is countercultural is that, hey, guess what? If your theology of gender plays into how the curse is playing out in modern society, mm. you probably have an issue. And so the beautiful picture of renewal of the image of of God and humanity um, through the gospel in the church as the renewed humanity is that now uh, men are not lording over their wives. They're not abusing their power. They're, they're walking in Christ-like humility mm-hmm. um, and service to their wives while leading and women rather than ruling or the desire to rule over their husband um, are willingly submitting Um, as Christ submitted to the father. Mm. And so what you're seeing there is actually a redemption and a, and a salvation picture of how God has restored um, his image through this reconciliation of humanity through the gospel to where now there's this mirroring of the Trinity um, as God truly is through these roles where men are not being uh, cowardly abusers who are ruling over women with contempt Mm -hmm. and women are not seeking to rule over men, um, but are, are willingly as they are loved submitting to men. Yeah. We even talked about that and like covered that a little bit in more detail in our um, episode about like marriage and what it is in a biblical standpoint Love is a banner. Um, yeah, I believe that's what it's called. Okay, yeah. I was like, what do we call it? We went over a couple different like versions of that phrase, but yeah. Yeah. So that that's that's my final thought, I think, is that what comp what healthy complementarianism is essentially is God's healing, restoration, and restoring mm-hmm. of a new humanity in the church to image him well and to image him as the body of Christ. Yeah. Praise God for that. The last thing I'd want to just leave people with is to not take our word for it. This is all in the scriptures for you to find yourself. We don't, we don't want you to just take away what we're saying and the way we've communicated it, but just to really dive into yourself. It seems like kind of the church advice, but we really, really mean it every single time we've said it on this 
on this podcast because we provide those verses. Everything that's been referenced or mentioned is there for you to find, for you to read for yourself. So we just really encourage you to visit that notes section and look at those passages for yourself. I also say just a good starting place because we didn't mention them, but but Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 are really good starting points Yeah, mm-hmm. when dealing with these dynamics. Yeah, we'll have those. We have them in the in the notes. Yeah, we'll have those in our show notes as well. But um, well, with that, I think we're going to wrap up here. But thank you for joining us, Henny. Yeah, of course, <laughs> it's fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Some really good thoughts there for sure. So um, we hope that this was um, helpful or encouraging to you or. Um, you know, just impactful in some way and ultimately pointed you to Christ um, at the end of the day. So um, if you haven't already, please make sure to check out our previous episodes. I think we're on like episode 12 now. We have quite, yeah. a, few, yeah. quite a few out there. So got lots of things to listen to if you're bored, you know, I've got nothing to do. So definitely check that out. Check out our Instagram at Cedar and Cypress pod as well. And we will see you next time.